What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, Friday Questions on the Air. And for those not familiar with Friday Questions, for many years I had a now-defunct blog, and one of the features of said blog was Friday Questions, where people would write in their questions and I would answer them. And now that I have a podcast, I try to do the same thing, you know, every three, four months. If you have a question, you just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And like I said, uh, when I compile a bunch of them, then I will take an episode and read your questions. I've done this before, and you guys seem to like it, so we will do it again. So we're going to start off with a question by Kim Cruz. And Kim says, Carla is my favorite Cheers character. Did anyone famous audition for the role? Who are the finalists for the role besides Rhea Perlman? I read that singer Janice Ian turned down the role. Is that true? And uh, did a studio or network want someone other than Rhea? To my knowledge, Kim, uh, Rhea was pretty much the only one that the Charles Brothers and Jim Burroughs had in mind. Now, they're very familiar with Rhea. She was married, she still is, to Danny DeVito. And, of course, they all worked together on Taxi. And Rhea even had a part on the show where she played Xena, who was Louis' girlfriend. So the Charles Brothers got a chance to uh, see her acting chops. And to my knowledge... When they were creating the part, uh, I think they had Rhea Perlman in mind. That's not to say that the casting director didn't come through with a list of a lot of people, and they might have even read a couple of people, because uh, she was already cast before David Isaacs and I got on the show. But to my knowledge, there was no serious contender for the role of Carla Tortelli other than Rhea Perlman. As far as Janice Ian is concerned, I never heard that story. (laughs) I don't think it's true. I love Janice Ian. She's a wonderful singer. I have no idea whether or not she can act. And Janice Ian, I don't know. When you think Janice Ian, 
you automatically don't go to comedy. So I don't think that rumor was ever true. David asks, no last name, but that's okay. David said, if you had your time over again, and supposing you didn't write for a living or become involved in broadcasting, is there something else that you might have enjoyed turning your hand to, uh, like me wanting to study economics or astronomy? Again, that was David. Well, when I was a kid, in addition to broadcasting and wanting to be a baseball announcer and um, wanting to do something in the entertainment industry. Um, I was a cartoonist, and it's something that I did all through elementary school and high school. And at one point in high school, I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to have a daily comic strip? to be syndicated in 350 newspapers uh, around the country and thousands of newspapers around the world. But then I thought, man, I got to come up with seven jokes a week. Seven a week? Who could possibly withstand that kind of pressure? And, of course, the irony is, going into television writing, I have to come up with seven jokes in four minutes. But at the time... That seemed extremely daunting. And then I kind of graduated to drawing caricatures. My favorite was Al Hirschfeld of the New York Times. And I thought, well, that might be kind of a cool gig. You know, he's like at the time, he was in his 60s. So I figure, eh, you know, in another mm, 10, 15, 18 years... He's going to retire, and uh, maybe I can slide in. It seemed like a pretty good job. Go to all the Broadway openings, draw caricatures for the New York Times. I thought that would be a, a good gig. But I instead decided to gravitate towards broadcasting, and Al Hirschfeld didn't last another 10, 15 years. He lasted almost 40 <laughs> he almost turned 100 and was still drawing caricatures for the New York Times. So I would have had to wait a long, long time. What would I want to do? I guess maybe teaching. But here's the thing. When you go to school, especially in high school, and you have all of these requirements like math and history and English and science, and you get one elective, whether it's art or drama or music or shop class, or whatever it is that you find interesting, whatever your elective is. And I thought to myself, you know, once I finally get out of school and have to choose a vocation, why not? Choose an elective, right? So all I knew is that whatever I would eventually gravitate towards, that it would have to be something that appeared to be kind of fun. And the fact that I happen to have a sense of humor, which was good because I have absolutely no coordination, 
but uh, that sort of led me in that direction. And uh, if I didn't go into writing, um, I, I don't know, maybe stand-up comedy, uh, maybe I would have become an actor, although I don't think I have the chops to be an actor. Uh, I've done some improv. Maybe I would have really tried to make a career as a uh, character actor. Don't really know. But like I said, whatever it would ultimately be, it would be an elective. Tim Gray asks the following question. Was there ever any talk of Shelley Long guesting on Becker? I remember Rhea Perlman and George Went in separate guest appearances. Maybe her appearance would have been too distracting or just not a good fit for Ted Danson's characterization. Thank you, Tim. Um, no, we never seriously discussed having Shelley come on the show. And here's one of the big reasons why. The motivating factor for Ted when he read the Becker pilot written by Dave Hackle was that it was very, very different from Sam Malone. A lot of people were offering him versions of Sam Malone, and he wanted to play something very, very different. And so he wanted that character to very much distance himself from Cheers. Now, Rhea and George were supporting characters, so it was kind of fun to sort of sprinkle them in. But if Shelley appeared on the show, then you just couldn't help but be thinking Sam and Diane. Or you'd be watching Becker and whatever character Shelley would be playing, and in your mind you'd be going, oh man, I miss Sam and Diane. They were better as Sam and Diane. And you don't want anyone watching Becker missing Sam Malone. So that's the main reason why Shelley was never really approached. That said, Ted and Shelley uh, were friends during that period. I remember there was a time I was directing the show and Ted came up to me and said that he watched an episode of Cheers from the first season and thought how fantastic Shelley was and picked up the phone and called her. And the two had a nice long chat. Interestingly, I don't know if this was still the case when Teddy was doing Becker, but when Ted was doing Cheers, he never watched the show. Whenever the show was on, he never watched the show. Uh, he always kind of felt that if he did, he would be disappointed in his performance. And so he never really saw Sam Malone on, uh, on the small screen until years later after the show. And then he kind of discovered it, you know, didn't take a pandemic, but uh, like some people who found the show and binged on it. But Ted started watching Cheers and went like, wow, it was pretty good. And he really appreciated the work of Shelley Long. So Yes, they were friends. Uh, no, we never thought to have Shelley on Becker. Kyle Kopes says, 
Have you ever read a movie script that right away you knew it would be a great movie? Yes. And it did turn out to be a great movie, but it was not the movie that I pictured when reading the script. The movie is Arthur, and it was written by Steve Gordon. And Steve and I were friends, and Steve gave me his first draft of Arthur, which I still have and cherish. And it's a wonderful screenplay. So funny. Nobody wrote dialogue as well and as funny as Steve Gordon. But the script was way too long. There was a whole flashback prologue at the beginning of it, and the end was very different. I think the screenplay is like 140 pages, which is massively too long for a comedy. And the other thing is I pictured, based on the way the character of Arthur was described, I pictured like a young Robert Redford. So when I saw that they were making the movie with Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli, I was scratching my head going, what? What kind of casting is that? But of course, Steve Gordon also directed Arthur. And when I saw the movie, it was great. It was hilarious. If you haven't seen Arthur, please treat yourself. The original Arthur. Don't see Arthur 2. That's a piece of crap. Don't see the remake of Arthur. That's an even worse piece of crap. Just see the original with Dudley Moore and uh, Liza Minnelli. And you go, Liza Minnelli is a romantic interest in a comedy? But it worked. It worked. And and she was terrific in it. Um, John Gielgud absolutely steals the movie. So, that would be a case where, um, yeah, I read the movie. I thought this would be great. And then when I saw it, it was something completely different. But I liked it just as well. It's kind of like whenever they adapt a novel into a screenplay and you've read the novel and you picture certain characters you know, you might even picture certain actors playing the roles. And then when you see the movie version, uh, it was not as good as in your head. You know, the character wasn't really as as vivid. I'll give you an example for me was Bosch. I love the Bosch books by Michael Conley. And I was so excited when I saw that they were going to make a TV series of it, Michael Connolly was even going to be involved. And then they had, uh, what is it, Titus Welker is his name, something like that, uh, playing Bosch. And that's not how I pictured Bosch at all. And I couldn't get past it. It's like I'm watching this guy, and he's a very good actor, but it's like, no, nah, this, this ain't Bosch. And it uh, it ruined it for me. I, I watched a few episodes and I said, nah, I'll just stick with the books. Chris Delacies, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, has a question. Hi, Ken. 
Don't recall if you ever talked about short-term or one-off characters, someone who's only going to be in one episode, someone's cousin who's in from out of town, villain of the week, uh, in a cop show, etc. What's it like to write for those characters? Is it tougher than writing for series regulars? Well, as long as the character has a purpose, as long as there's a reason for that character... You know, sometimes they're they're small, thankless roles. You're the waiter. You're the bellhop. You know, you're the guy at the DMV, something like that. You have three, four lines. Uh, Although I can tell you, actors who have like one or two lines, those are the people who will kill you. Those are the people who are terrible because they will try to make a huge meal. Not all of them, but a lot of people, you know, if if you're a guard and you have to go right this way, that's the character, uh, the actor, that will kill you. Right this way. Right this way. It's like, no, just right this way. Yeah, th- those are the guys that uh, are problematic. But if you write a character who is in sort of a guest spot, as you say, somebody's cousin or uh, somebody new as an office worker or uh, a patient, if you spend the time to give him an attitude, maybe give him some characteristic, try to do something interesting with the character, then it's just a matter of casting and finding the best actor who can fulfill that role. One thing that I always admired about uh, The Good Wife and then later The Good Fight, uh, done by Robert and Michelle King, is that every judge... Every attorney had some interesting quirk. There was no generic judges. There were no generic attorneys. They all had some kind of attitude, weird quirk, affectation, something. They always found a way to make every character interesting. And that's what we try to do. And if you take the time in front and find that interesting attitude, then you can write a funny character. And then when you cast it, you can find somebody who can really fit into that role. Okay. uh, Chris goes on to ask, were you ever just handed an actor that the network loved and told, write something for him, her. Yes and no. No, it was not a network. It was uh, the showrunners of Frasier, Peter Casey and David Lee. And this was right after 9-11. And I'm sure you've heard the tragic story that David Angel, who was also one of the creators of Frasier, was on the second plane that crashed into the World Trade Center. And he was going to write an episode that already had worked out a outline. He was going to write an episode that Michael Keaton 
was going to star in. And so we felt very honored that Peter and David asked David Isaacs and I to write that episode instead, which we did. And I can't say that I'm thoroughly thrilled with it, if I'm being very honest with you, because we pictured Michael Keaton playing a very dynamic character. He was supposed to be a TV evangelist. And so that guy had to just have so much charisma. And in his early days, you see a movie like Night Shift, and Michael Keaton just explodes off the screen. And he played it very intense and very interior. And we're going, this isn't Batman. You're not Bruce Wayne. So I I don't particularly love that episode. But again, we wrote for a character and we wrote for an actor who we knew could do that character, but the actor chose not to do that character. And finally, Sharon asks a baseball question. She says, now that we've all seen the pitch clock in action, how do you think it would have affected you if you had been in action when you were calling games? Actually, Sharon, it would not have affected me at all. And I say that because when I was broadcasting Major League Baseball, games were generally less than three hours. Sometimes they were three hours, and a lot of times those games were as a result of a catcher because a catcher can establish the pace. And Carlton Fisk, who at the time was with the White Sox, any time you were playing a game where Carlton Fisk was behind the plate, you knew it was going to be a three-hour game. And it's really over the last uh, 10, 15 years that analytics and hitters being more selective and taking more pitches and fouling more pitches away and uh, changing pitchers every three minutes and, and all that. The game just lengthened in time to where it was getting to be ridiculous. There was a, a case where the Texas Rangers were playing a ball game and they went 22 minutes between batted balls put in play. 22 minutes of walks, of throws over to first, of foul balls, changing pitchers, hitters walking around. and a, uh, 22 minutes between batted balls being put into play. It's ridiculous. It's just insane. So I've been watching games with the pitch counts, and it's not that the games are now suddenly completely different. It's more like they're the way they used to be. And I know there was some question, people saying, well, for the poor announcers now, uh, you can't work in any of your stories and everything. It's like, no. Vin Scully, for all of the great years he was doing the Dodgers and getting in all kinds of stories and tidbits and 
analysis and everything else. Those games were two hours and 15 minutes. And he found ways of weaving all of that information in. It actually is easier to call a ball game that's less than three hours, as you might imagine. And by the way, ball players, especially infielders, much prefer it. Okay? Everyone stays in the game. And the other perk for me about the pitch clock is that batters got to get in there too. And it cuts down all of the walk-up music and all of that ego bullshit that used to accompany players coming to the plate. And like I said, players have to stay in there too. So you can't do like Nomar Garcia Parra, some other players where after every pitch he would step out and he would adjust his batting gloves and he would shake his head three times. And it's like, you know, that's that's like a, a minute and a half bullshit. And surprise, players don't have to do that anymore. That's my feeling on the pitch clock. That said... I hate all the other new rules. The phantom second baseman, for those who are not baseball aficionados, this is something that they have instituted. It actually started during the pandemic, and that is so that games don't go 12, 14, 15 innings. God forbid you spend $50, $60 for tickets and you get bonus baseball another four or five innings. No, no, we can't have that. To make sure that extra innings don't go on and on and on, starting in the 10th inning, each team has a runner at second base to start the inning. The idea being all you need is a single or two, and all of a sudden you got to run. It's that much easier. Do you know it is now possible to pitch a perfect game and lose. Yep. Pitch a 10-inning or 11-inning perfect game and lose because you got a runner at second, and the first batter hits a ground ball, out number one, runner goes to third. Second batter, sacrifice fly, two outs, runner scores. You lose one to nothing. So that rule, I think, is stupid. And then baseball doesn't really admire it either because when you get to the playoffs, then then there's no phantom runner. And, hmm, there were some great games in the playoffs last year that went deep into extra innings. And the tension just mounts. Yeah, we... We don't need that. You know, the players who were making $80 million a year, uh, you know, they got to get back to the to the clubhouse. They want to stand out there uh, for uh, another 20, 30 minutes and, and play more baseball. Uh-uh. And the other thing I hate is the uh, bases, second bases is, is now uh, three inches bigger, so it's easier to steal bases. So what does that do to all of the records of the past? Okay, how many more bases would Ricky Henderson have stolen? Maury Wills have stolen and Lou Brock have stolen uh, if the bases were three inches larger. 
Okay, so on that uh, that note, I'll get off my soapbox, and that is the uh, is the Friday questions on the air for this podcast. Again, if you have a question, you want to get me all riled up, uh, go ahead. Uh, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to Bruce and Jason Miller, and to Jonathan Wolfert. And if uh, you want to follow me on Instagram, see some of my New Yorker cartoons, you can find me, Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for your questions. There were a few that I didn't get to, but I will try to in the future. And again, I love the participation. I love hearing from you. So send me those questions at HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Talk to you again next week. Bye. Hollywood and Levine.